0: Hello listeners, and welcome back to Drunk Book Club, where we watch- nope, that's not it. Can't watch books. Where we read books that you have heard of, but probably didn't bother to read. I'm Vry, and with me as always is Dorothy. Hi everybody! And this time we returned to the old and familiar well of the Vampire Chronicles, which started out this series. As always, Dorothy is making the drinks. Uh, I have been reduced to uh, non-mixed drinks. I'm not allowed. Vry is drinking sparkling wine. I'm drinking a Vampire's Kiss cocktail, which has uh, Chambord, raspberry vodka, and a little of that sparkling wine. If you can't afford the Chambord, any raspberry liqueur will do. Similarly, if you want something a little less hardcore, um, you can always substitute the sparkling wine with cranberry to intensify the red. Yeah, as it turns out, these taste really good, uh, but they're entirely made of alcohol, so you can drink two or three of these and then wind up flat on your ass. Uh, I may have discovered this. I know. They taste like soda. <laughs> they do, and they're red and pretty, and it's it's good. And so they I, have all of the effervescence of a vampire's kiss. That is the worst thing anyone has ever said. That's not even good enough for a tagline. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst. Anime has definitely said that at some point. Maybe. Maybe... No further than maybe. The vampire anime I've been watching lately is shit. (laughs) And I mean, fair enough, this is shit, too. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we uh, started out with Prinzlestadt, which is the direct predecessor to this novel, Prinzlestadt and the Realms of Atlantis. So if you head back to that first episode, you can get an idea of what went on before then, or at least as good an idea as we have. No guarantee of clarity. But um, you don't have to do that. We're gonna do our uh level best, despite being drunk to sort of give you an overview and acquaintance with this thirteen book series. It's many years of our lives. We've made poor decisions. I mean, not that poor. Aww. it it may have been how we met. I mean, we met because of uh <laughs> because of the garbage reanimator boy, but like. Six you only ever paid attention to me because I was like, hey, wait a minute. Do you stand garbage vampires yeah. secretly in your heart? Then Because that you were tr- hiding it. You were pretending on your blog. Yeah, well, and you know why? Because because you were a serious professional? No, because Anne Rice is terrifying. That too. It goes around. I'll fight the- her in a parking lot. She's old. She probably has osteoporosis. <laughs> so to get you up to speed on everything before the shitty books... Okay, that's too much. To get you off to speed on the good books, which is the first three where Anne Rice had editors. And, which, let's face it, this is a direct continuation from. There's a good 25-year skip here. Yeah, there is the strangest thing where the first three books are kind of a cohesive narrative, and then the last book, Prince Lestat, kind of tries to pretend that the intervening books didn't happen. But it still has to deal with the fact that 25 years of books happened in between there. Not a joke. Inbe- it's just trying to do hypertime or something. It is just a direct continuation from events that happened in 1985. But now it's 2012. And, like, all the other stuff happened in there, but but let's just ignore that. There yeah. are references to all the shit that happened in between there, but in the most cursory manner. Like, it's just random shit that happens in your day-to-day life. And that's a problem with the pacing of this series. Pacing. Because, like, all of the other books had the highest possible drama you could pack into, like, 200 years of dumb bullshit. Somebody does. And each of the subsequent books has that same level of drama. But, you know, time is moving in a linear fashion now. And whoops, we caught up to the 1980s. So, like, what now? We, we got two weeks. So so now that all of this 200 years worth of bullshit is happening every two weeks. I can't believe that she didn't want the book where Lestat and the literal devil meet literal Jesus Christ on his way to literal Golgotha in the proper canon. Oh, oh it's back in, remember? It's back in. It's, it's back in, but she's trying to get it scrub as much of the Jesus out of it as possible. Yeah, because we got new Jesus. We got new sexy, sexy blonde Jesus. God. Sexy redhead Jesus in the Tower of Babel. Sober Vry has left some notes for drunk fry, and that is going to help us. That that is going to help us through the formatting of this podcast. Fingers crossed, all of you out there. So the first three good books very loosely follow the tale of uh, Louis de Pointe de Lac and Lestat de Lioncourt, who are these two vampires and their love story, which is just a horrendous trash fire. They're together for seventy years. They break up. Murders happen. Deaths happen. Lestat, you know, get gets pregnant to save the marriage, then kills the baby. It goes. It, he thought it would go so well to turn a five year old into a vampire, knowing that her mind would become an adult's and her body would not, because like he's got no excuse here. He he's met Armand. Yep. No. He, he's met Armand. It's uh, Louis' soulmate. Yeah, I did not think that would happen. No, no. That that's the oddest thing about these characters is that the, the shittier the books get, the more the dark horse pairing becomes the correct one. It's weird. So the original trilogy is about this trash fire marriage. How they break up. They both write burn books about each other. It's amazing. It's incredibly public. Lasat literally only becomes a rock star and novelist because he discovers that his shy retiring mouse of a husband did it first and said that he was a loser. And so he has to come out of the no- woodwork like no excuse. I have something to say, and also I'm in a rock band. That's way cooler and more rebellious than telling all wear the vampire. I leather pants for my vampire boner. We don't talk about the boners. <laughs> yes, we do. No. When don't we talk about the boners, Bry? I mean, we were having. A when do we work. ever pass up the opportunity to talk about the vampire boners? It's hilarious. No, it's it's just sad, and one of many many things that were introduced and not thought through, and then never mentioned again. But presumably still canon because they were never it's not funnier mentioned again. that way. Yeah. So, um, but, um, Lestat's rock music is so great, it resurrects the queen of all vampires, and she's a um, misandrist. For perfectly good reasons, frankly. Uh, yeah, I mean, she did spend most uh, most of the past 2,000 years in the company of Marius, so. The worst. The worst. Yes, the worst, because at least Akio Otori was written in the knowledge that he's supposed to be the bad guy. Marius is a really nice dude. What's your problem? No, you're right. He had perfectly legitimate reasons for gr- grooming that 15-year-old. And, uh, and trying to marry that 10-year-old. It's fine. It's all fine. He gives really great advice and should definitely be in charge of everything. So, um, he wrecks a that marriage. Most of these books are built on this idea that vampirism is... This long history of nobody knowing anything because everybody's trying to keep various secrets from each other, so... And somehow that's not... The, the core message of that is not that that's a shitty thing to do. Well, it, sh- it kind of seems like it is on accident, because the whole thing... Right, but, but like, not not in practice, not in play. No, not as it actually turns out, because let's not... Puts out this book and joins a rock band and is gonna tell everybody and break the masquerade. And gosh, this is so threatening because because you know the older vampires might just come and burn him up for that. Mm-hmm. Nothing bad happens to him, no. But except that the Queen of All Vampires really thinks he rocks out good. Yep. But it is a gesture to his husband to be like, I'm sorry about all the secrecy that I had during our marriage. What what should we burn the world down to tell you a truth? Yep. It, it, has it works as a dramatic gesture in the context of that trilogy, where it's like a culmination. Mm-hmm. Even though at the end of that one, it just ends with you know, actually, uh, the se- the masquerade is still the masquerade, and we're just going to uh, implement a new queen who is whiter and uh, re- recognizes that not it all has men red hair and green eyes. that turned out to be important. Even though like Macaria had actually been raped. Yes, it's pronounced Macari, according to Anne Rice. No, it should be Mekare, though, and this is a house of goodness. Okay, but what about Mekare? Is how I always pictured it. Literally anything but Mikari. That is a Sex in the City character who was rejected. <laughs> Mikari. <laughs> that, that's her Hulk form. Pink Hulk. Who, who was tragically crushed under the glass ceiling. Yeah, but, but she, she was exposed to a, a uh, gamma-contaminated Cosmo. You know what? With the shit Marvel's publishing the- nowadays, it's fine. But like, I need to stress that McCary had actually been like raped and and subjected to systematic physical violence by men. Uh huh. I mean, Akasha like hadn't. I mean, like her husband was clearly an abusive dick, but in a you know I lead a dynasty sort of way. Yeah, but also she had so plenty this is of bad years. writing. It is, but she also had plenty of years to Marius. Uh, If you had thousands of years with only Marius around and you had to fu- and er, your only exposure to the world is looking through his eyes and how he treats people, I feel like deciding to kill the entire male population of the world is reasonable. Except Lestat and the people Lestat wants to fuck. Yep. That, That was a special proviso. Yep. There's a whole conclusion where you have to, they can't just kill Akasha because she is because the source if, of all vampires. Because if anything bad happens to Akasha, like she, she went out in sunlight once and people got crispy fried. But, but because all vampirism comes from the unity of this wandering fleshless spirit that wants to taste the pleasures of the flesh and the ethos of peaceful cannibal witch tribe who are white. There's a lot of race shit in this book, and it's not our lane, but also it's so bad that we can't not we point can it out. We can see flames leaping up from all the way over there. Like, uh-huh. the crash site is visible. Because of that, the the only way to deal with her is to rip out her eyes, crack open her skull, and eat her brain, and eat her heart. That That's how the source is transmitted. The source being th- this mindless demon named Amel. I wasn't. Was it even named Amel at the time? Amal was named in Queen of the Damned. Fair because enough, because Amal really wanted to fuck Mccare. Right? It was a. It was a, yeah. And so all of that becomes relevant, and all of the accompanying, you know, web imagery. He really wanted to fuck Mccare. No, each of them gets subsequently worse, and I hate it. Mccur. <laughs> Mccur. No, that's the dude that works on your car. <laughs> no, no, Mccur. The Dragon Rider. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you bring that name to that house? She'll appear <laughs> with her tent pegs. So all of the source shit is relevant. There are subsequent books, mind. There are books where Lestat has other adventures, and then she runs out of gas with that, and <laughs> including the, the time he eats a lady out after after having his eyeball ripped out by Satan. Yep, and it was fine. Visiting literal Jesus on his way to literal Golgotha. And his eyeball's back. It's fine. It, it's fine. He fixed it. And then when she ran out of steam with that, she wrote books from the other perspectives that she hadn't cashed in on and And books where she tied it into her other series where it was already kind of tied in, but no, let's just weld these together. And then there was her Jesus fanfic phase, a different Jesus fanfic phase. And also the werewolf books that uh, were, uh, they did nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't finish. So they did nothing in the bestseller lists to her satisfaction, probably because of those rogue Amazon reviewers. I'll have a bunch are, of fan lore links for you. Who Y'all are interrogating don't worry about the it. text from the wrong perspective. Ugh, it's a real tragedy. All of this to say Prince Lestat is, is a th- direct continuation of the, the brain whipping the brain ripping vampire queen book. Yep, because now the source is awake and cognizant of its own self-identity and it's pissed about it. Right, and in Prince Lestat, a bunch of bullshit happened and then Lestat ripped out Mooker's brain and eyeballs and heart and ate them, and so now Lestat is the source of all vampires. And all of the vampires had a seizure while he was doing this, but it's fine though. All of them, mm, every not all single of them. one. Nope, not all of them. We know because retconning. Every single one of them had a seizure while he did that, and now, now he's the prince of all vampires, not king because Anne likes princes better. So now Lestat got a demon in his head. And it's a problem because the demon seems to want to take control over his body. But it's okay. Ultimately, that doesn't matter. It's not a problem. Yes. Like, it's a thing throughout this whole book that, that the demon keeps trying to make his hand move and shit. But it's not a problem. It's fine. Like, this is not me being sarcastic. This is a through line throughout the whole book that has no point or meaning and is worthless. Mm-hmm. It goes nowhere. Does nothing. There is a perfectly functional horror novel in here. Yeah. Where it's being told from the perspective of somebody locked into a body that's being taken away from them and used for malicious purposes against all of their loved ones. Well, and it's even more fitting because Lestat, the main character who plagues me and yet whom I have the feelings about, is that Lestat's character arc has always involved the, the fact that he was turned into a monster against his will and he is constantly fearing the loss of his humanity. And he, he struggles with the fact that he gets these power-ups he didn't ask for that make him more and more inhuman at very quick rates relative to what he would just have by becoming a Because he was just a dumbass who wanted to fuck. Yeah, he just wanted to be an actor in Paris. With his shit boyfriend. Uh-huh, he was happy. He was a good boy. He wouldn't have even known that his life was shitty. But, you know, he was kidnapped and raped by good guy Magnus. That is just one of the many signs that this book is fucked is that the guy who is explicitly a rapist, horrible person that, and and these books draw a lot from bodice rippers, so there's a lot of rape apologism, but even those books know that Magnus is fucked up. I've written an entire essay on the way this, like, plays on, on rape and virtue throughout the history of captivity narratives through bodice rippers. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a thing I've written. By... Realms of Atlantis, Magnus is back and he's a hot ghost now and Lestat thinks a lot about how he should really just get over that whole rape thing because it was all for the best. Magnus's other rape victim is also here. Yeah, he deserves better. Lestat's granddaddy. It's weird when you say it like that. Grandpa Benedict. No, it's weird when you say it like that. The extremely boyish Grandpa Benedict. With his Worthers. Benedict would give people worthers, is the yes. thing. Yes, he, <laughs> he would. totally would. Uh-huh. Benedict is another character I've adopted because clearly the author doesn't care about him. That happens a lot because she has this problem. It started in Queen of the Damned is the thing, but then after Queen of the Damned, she didn't have an editor to stop her from doing this, where she likes to introduce a whole lot of characters for one-off perspectives, and then she gets bored with them. But she's not willing to, like, just collapse them all into single characters, or kill them off. Sometimes she kills them off. Only the unimportant... She introduces an entire new character in this book just so she doesn't have to kill off an asshole who was introduced in the she last She introduces book. over 30 characters in this book. Oh my god. The thing to know about this book is that it was originally an original novel that was not vampire-related at all. Originally, it was just a book about Atlantis, and then she realized... Okay, she doesn't say this is what she realized, but, like, she realized it wasn't going to sell like that. She does admit that she, that at random she decided to collapse it into the Vampire Chronicles books because she's incapable of writing without Lestat now. Mm-hmm. That is, in fact, how she described it, as she can't really do writing without Lestat because Lestat – her thing with Lestat is weird. She's one of those authors who calls her characters her babies and insists that they talk to her. But, but also they are her, but also they are her dead husband – She's too close to her characters and has been writing this series for too long, for forty years. And it's a, you know, I would almost contend, fifty years. Uh huh. Yeah, because the original short story started back in seventy two and didn't get accepted. Rightfully, it was badly written. I've read it. it it's not very good. You know, I would, I'm glad I read it though because it contains the single best detail of the entire series. Mm-hmm. Go on, Daniel, the interviewer, met Louis at a bar called the Pink Baby. You're welcome. That's all you need to know. We all knew that he picked up this boy at a gay bar, but now, like, we really know, and we have a face to it. I, I just like to imagine Daniel lurking around this bar, hoping to get seedy stories of the gay life for the radio. And he's still and in the also, closet. So he's- and also hoping to get a blowjob out of it. Uh-huh. Giving or getting. Not picky. <laughs> but he's totally going to sell this as, no, no, I observed the gays. I am an ally. Y'all know that trick? Mm-hmm. Or even more. Look at the seedy underbelly I infiltrated. I'm not an ally. I'm an investigator. <laughs> You're right, Either this was the 70s. It's the best thing ever. Like, this was the early 70s. This was before Starsky and Hutch did a gay episode. You know, besides the whole series. It was before AIDS and before cruising. That's a whole... <laughs> nope, I can't. I can't. I'm stopping myself. Check out our cruising episode from our 2017 Pride Month series. <laughs> I was talking about the fact that these books definitely are about AIDS, but, like, Anne continues to staunchly refuse to admit that she had books that are coded to be about AIDS. That's a whole nother can of worms. No, no, she insists that these are completely detached from the AIDS epidemic while writing books about gay characters contaminating one another. That's another fun game you can play with these books. What should she have known if she were a conscientious writer? Well, and also, how did this coding get in here so coherently when she clearly has no idea what she's done? Anyway, so where were we? We were at the book that is should have been a standalone, which is... Atlantis. Yes. Honestly, it would have been a shitty book either way, but at least you'd have had room to breathe. As it It would stands. have been a dumb, shitty book, but, but it wouldn't have been as uncomfortably racist. Oh, no, it, w- it still would have been racist. Oh, though. it would have been, but it wouldn't have been as obviously... Because, because it wouldn't have been trapped in this system she's had since the 80s where vampires get whiter over time. And this is a great thing, apparently. Yeah, that that's not a horrific thing where progressing towards greater vampirism and whiteness is, you know, makes you more murdery and terrible. Like that—that that is a thing that's going on, but that's not where she's going with that. So technically the standalone narrative that you can kind of pick through this which ends up coming back around to is It's a- literally just a monologue. So Amel be- wasn't he wasn't a demon you guys. He was totally not a demon. He He's was He's a ghost. He was a ghost who was originally but wait, he wasn't a, he was a ghost that was a clone. But right. wait. No, 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 but wait. He wasn't a clone. He was actually chosen by bird aliens to No become- wait. Before that he was a white child born to a village of brown Russian people who simultaneously had a very pleasant childhood which taught him all of the virtues of uh, of warm, soft human feeling as opposed to birds or, or uh, reptiles. But also was reviled and hated and ultimately sacrificed to the gods during a lean year because everyone found him repulsive on account of his pale skin red hair. <laughs> And green eyes. He is a persecuted white boy among brown people. And then he's the savior of the world. Because aliens took him Mm -hmm. and made him a super being and then sent him out to fix their monitoring stations. That's not a joke. He he was literally told to repair radio towers. But he built Atlantis. Yep. With his superior knowledge and gifted things to the non-white people's and then, who were wise and en- the ones who were wise enough to recognize his superior gospel. And then the aliens were like, "Oh shit, we lost control because we actually wanted to wipe out the mammals and make some kind of reptile evolution the main species on earth." Except we didn't. We're unsure. Except apparently it was some chess game where they didn't actually, but the longer we play out this game with dumb reasons, the more mysterious it is. But, like, wouldn't it make more sense to send agents down with the explicit instruction to cause to cause problems and bullshit? Because they keep sending people down with, like, a different mission, but knowing that you'll try and rebel and that will create more strife in the long run. Are y'all familiar with Madoka? What am I saying? You're on the internet. You're familiar with Madoka Magica. Okay, I wasn't familiar with Madoka Magica until you made me watch it. it my My daughter is good nothing else is that's not true my other daughters are also good everything else is yes they They are very thin well yes but i have feelings about them and i as you have learned from reading these books that's a very potent feeling (laughs) i have feelings about madoka i do i have feelings that it's mostly kind of shitty misery porn but the gay kind of evens it out and also there's a couple good characters doesn't the gay make it worse there is no movie I'm just saying the capitalization on misery porn, turning around the gayness, kind of makes it worse. Yeah, but originally it it ends with the gayness is the salvation of literally the entire universe. I bring up Madoka, the thing that I least want to know people's opinions on ever in the history of the universe. In which girls die in reverse bust order. (laughs) She's not wrong. Because the bird aliens are just Qb. They are emotionless white aliens who don't understand well, no, human emotions. They, they emotion. have colorful plumage that looks like bunk robes because Anne really decided she just likes the idea of balls swinging back and forth under things. And the burb aliens need our emotions because that fuels them. They subsist on the power of it's, our strong emotions. It's really unclear why they do this. They appear to just be fapping to bird tube. Yeah, pretty much. Like- there is literally no explanation of why they do this. They don't appear to not eat organic food. It appears to just be, eh, we, we like watching things die. It's because the important part of this is that the Burb aliens invented religion to have more, so that there would be more suffering for them to watch, and it's deep commentary. Because the only function of religion is to pornographize suffering. All religion. Every religion. All of them, by which we of course mean Christianity, the only one whose vague shape of she conceives in this novel. The solution to all of this, and the fact that Amel is fucking up their suffering porn, is they Send make- Some brown clones that are not real people. They're not real people, and also they're not as smart as Amel. And also they're very much extensively described as not real women. Yeah, there is one, there is one woman among these four clones, and just- And she describes herself as a woman. But Mm -hmm. Anne extensively describes her repeatedly as not really a woman. And, like, how deep does this shit go? We just don't know. It's probably because. Yeah, I mean, yes, probably. Allegedly, she's very litigious. No, no. As a reader, I would speculate that Anne is not sensitive to issues of gender and sexuality despite fapping over the gays for decades. She tries once or twice in this book, and it made me real mad. Real mad. She just real bad. It, it was bad and awful. Um, Ursula K. Le Guin was doing the genders as a cis woman better than this 50 years before this novel was published. Before Anne ever started writing. Yeah. Funny. So all of that, by the way, is not told in a chronological fashion. That is info dumped in one chapter that's all done as an in-dialogue monologue. In-speech monologue. There we go. Right. Because for some reason, everybody's sitting here listening to this dumb bullshit. Mm-hmm. We haven't even gotten to the city. We haven't even gotten to Earth. I mean, they they go see Mel, and they're so enchanted by well, what no, he's done. No, first they come down to Earth, but first they are embedded within the tribes of the savages, which is literally the word used throughout the entire text by the by the woman narrating who at uh, whatever her you know whatever her prehistory she what people now call black. I'm sorry, this is a character who has been alive for multiple decades in America and is a black woman. Has lived as a black woman. Like, apart from anything else, she has lived as a black woman. Well, and also she has um heightened um cognitive abilities, which specifically are said to allow her to parse language and contextual usage of language at a greater rate than anybody else. So, if anybody could understand the implications of that. But anyway, they're embedded among the, the savages. savages. They have, like, these four clone people. hmm Capetria. Who should be interesting, but it's not. The, the, the lady with the vagina and boobs. Uh-huh. But, but alas, her womb is barren, so she's not a real woman. She's a super scientist who's been also, alive she, literally forever. Yes, but she doesn't have hyperactive vagina emotions. <sighs> she's cold and analytical and also can't have babies. All of these disqualify her from being a real woman. Her partner, Wealth. The only character described as having an afro. Like, the word afro isn't used, but it's an afro. Mm-hmm. Um, Doesn't talk much. Garrikine bravatkin who has the most interesting backstory that we don't care about i want to read the book about him fucking a russian prince after being after being recently unfrozen caveman lawyer that's his literal backstory and because n got a boner for how sad it is that the russian aristocracy was overthrown by them filthy plebs boy there's a lot of hating of the lower classes in this book like these books have always had wealth porn but holy shit but, like, she's specifically creating characters to come alive just to point out how sad it is that the Russian princes they were fucking got killed by plebs. Mm-hmm. And, All of this is, is explained in, like, two and pages. Derek. Fucking Derek. Derek has feelings. He's, he's, That's his function. That That is the function for which the bird aliens designed him. He's a crybaby twink for plot reasons. I assume that Derek was originally a vagina-having character... But then she decided to swap it with Capetria for excitement and spice. And so that she could claim she did something unusual. And also because Derek has a lot of narration and you can't have female characters doing that. I mean, Capetria delivers that entire boring ass fucking monologue. Derek is an early warning system. Um, He was designed with hot-blooded mammal emotions that the other clones don't have. So every time he has anxiety or stress, it's specifically functioning as some sort of shitty warning system that a problem is happening, but, like, very non-specifically, like, anxiety actually works. Yeah, this is, um, Except that every fucking time he panics, it's completely non-utilitarian. It has nothing to do with what's happening. Well, because he has PTSD. No! That is not a good enough explanation. Okay, but it should be, like... A significant thing in the novel, because the novel opens with the fact that he's been in captivity from some from the bad vampires, and that's what sets off this whole chain of conflict. So it should be a thing that his warning system is on the fritz because he's been severely traumatized. But that never actually comes up Except in a significant that it way. Super isn't, and like as a person with PTSD and anxiety, mm-hmm. it's very badly done. It's it's bad. Derek is a boring character. He, he cries. cries. Also, I think he's fucking his son, who is his hand. There is some straight up Cronenberg shit with the clones, but not in a fun way. It's not bad. Way. It's, it's bad and dumb, especially because it's delivered so flatly. And, and then there's no horror there. There's no horror in this horror novel. No, well, and the like mo- there's plenty of horror if you zoom out from it and, and pan around everything outside of the immediate situation. But on the page, there's no horror. It's not scary or upsetting. And it's the weirdest thing because these books have always been about, like, people sitting around and talking to each other and telling narratives. The source of the whole series. But at the same time, a lot of shit happened in the telling, where you were have you would have scenes of dialogue and a lot of character emotions and character inter- This book has a lot of exposition and telling. Even Interview with the Vampire, the first one, which is the most purely situated as – person A talks to person B, there was a significant emotional and sexual arc going on there outside of of the story. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't significant action, but there was a very serious arc of emotions going on with Daniel, the interviewer, becoming infatuated and sexually excited by Louis and coming to pretty logical emotional conclusions and moral conclusions and aesthetic conclusions by the end of the night and then having a turn at the end of it oh. and that was a simple fucking story compared to this mm-hmm. oh god there's so much going on and yet it, functionally all it comes down to is hey let me tell you this big chunk of backstory and then, and pe- then brain surgery and then people are like ah, oh, yes i understand And then they talk about their emotions, but nobody is actually feeling any emotions, and none of the emotions line up with how they act. I mean, if we were to chomp from Linkara, a lot of this book boils down. Should we do something? We should do something. Should we do something? We should do something. That's it. That's the book. People standing around not doing anything. Nodding back to one another. Even if even if you're here for the character relationships, it makes no goddamn sense. Amel's character is all over the place because he starts the book. Pretty delightful, honestly. Honestly, yeah. He starts the book as a horrible demon inside Lestat's skull who's constantly trying to ruin things. Which, Lestat's a douchebag, it's fine. I used to love this character, but now? I mean, even if you do like Lestat, it's pretty delightful to see somebody being a catty bitch inside his head. Oh yes, because he deserves it. And so does everybody else, because Amel is constantly dunking on all of the uh, these assholes that Lestat hangs out with for some reason. Mm-hmm. And it's it kind is kind of good. great. Although I would I would say that Anne is not writing Lestat anymore. She is writing Podstat, because this character is just whatever her whim is at the he moment. He irons his jeans. Yeah. Real Lestat would not iron his jeans. He would wear shitty ripped jeans and think it was cool. And it would be embarrassing, just like when I wear ripped jeans. Yes, but it would also be kind of charming. Unlike when I wear ripped jeans. Aww. He literally wears pressed jeans. I can't stress this enough. He wears a red velvet jacket and pressed jeans. And since there's no shirt or jewelry mentioned, I can only imagine. But he's just sitting there shirtless with, like, a red velvet sports jacket stretched over his pasty-ass chest with a little bit of blonde peach fuzz. This is a character that everybody describes as a cool, rebellious maverick, by the way. And definitely a black leather cowboy hat. Because he's a cowboy now. The worst. Probably a puka shell necklace is involved. Maybe some feathers braided into his hair. Stop, I'm begging you. Why? Because I'm right. They're drinking. They just downed the last. To avoid answering. Yes, it's bad. So it is, in fact, very good to see him get dunked on. But then the dunking stops as soon as the clones show up and remind him that, hey, Amel, you used to be like this white savior dude back in Atlantis. And then he becomes the beatific savior of the entire human race. Atlantis is just Manhattan. Mm-hmm. But with Lucristia? Luracastria. Right, you're right. I brought the Adventure Zone into this, and that was already bad enough with Magnus. They don't deserve this. Magnus in the Adventure Zone is a good boy. I have no idea what you're talking about, but okay. Trust me, he's a good boy. Eurycastria is a substance that Amel developed and built Atlantis out of. It can be used to make solar cells to power Atlantis, which is why the plan to have the clones go blow up Atlantis by blowing up the power cells who's pointless because there's no power plant because clean power woo. clean Or rather, clean power woo. <laughs> So apparently, somehow, this ghost, which tentacles touch all vampires, is turning their bodies into a scientifically produced substance that was made in labs 10,000 years ago in Atlantis. And this substance is energized through the provision of solar power, which it can collect and safely hold and and utilize in a clean fashion, but for some reason that they burst in flame when they go in sun. Yep. Yeah, this is her attempt to furiously dig her way out of the vampires turn white over time because no, 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 they're just turning slowly into this clear plastic substance. It's not racist. But they can't go out in the sun. So, like... None of this makes sense. Not that there aren't plenty of plain old continuity errors. (laughs) (laughs) Like you mean the time when six pages apart, she forgets whether the chateau has been under construction for 10 or 20 years. And even the 10 year quantity doesn't make sense with the last book. Oh no, I was thinking about the page where she says that Amel hasn't been like sentient until the 20th century because that absolves him of, Having affected Akasha and like pushed her towards instability and wanting to go on a murderous rampage, and then several chapters later, when she sa- when when she has him say that she t- he was totally awake and aware and knew Lestat the minute that he saw him in like the eighteen hundreds, and mind controlled him to come downstairs and play his violin in front of Akasha, and then they made out. Yep. So clearly, we know Amel can can travel throughout his tentacles to visit any vampire. And clearly when inhabiting a vampire, Amel can compel them to to undertake physical actions and develop emotional obsessions. Yep. So if Amel were to say, after Magnus raped Benedictine became a vampire, fix Magnus with an obsession with finding the perfect body for his successor, which does not actually fit, Magnus's conception of his own perfect body, given what we see of Magnus's perfected body, once he's a vampire, once he's a ghost, um, then uh, scour all of France for people who fit a specific visual profile and stockpile a bunch of corpses, which all look close enough to be brothers before settling on the spot. Yeah, it's, it's explicitly mentioned in this book that uh, Amel and Lestat look close enough to be related, except that Amel had red hair. And green eyes, mm-hmm. which makes certain things fucking creepy. I mean, as long as we're on the fan wank train, Amel has been theoretically cognizant since Tale of the Body Thief and canonically has a deleterious effect on the stability of his hosts and has been visiting Lestat's head. Since Tale of the Body Thief. You know, the one where he became a rapist who bears no similarity to his original character. Yeah, but, but he became a rapist in that one first while he was in a flesh body. A flesh meat body. Not a Luricastria body. There was time before that, when he was fucking around with David. I like to think that his brain meats carried over. Let me fan-like this. Abel is supposed to be Jesus, is the thing. He's a horrible. He's, he's theoretically an interesting villain, but he's horrible. Mm-hmm. He's awful. Again, in the last book, it is a significant plot point that Amel can't stay in your head because it makes makes you paranoid and, other, and violent and otherwise messes with your thoughts. But that's completely gone here. Now it's just – Now Lestat, the narrator, is telling trust. us very clearly that there's no problems with Amel. Sometimes he tries to move my hand. Sometimes I wake up and I've done shit that I don't remember. Sometimes phone calls were made. But it's fine. He says he loves me and I love him and we tell each other that a lot, even though there's no good goddamn reason why we should like each other. Even though, like, the shade early on was the best part of Amel. Meanwhile, that is another thing. The early books were delightful, partly because there were these discrepancies between the emotional experiences of the characters and and everybody lies. So you're trying to figure out, all right, who is lying about this? How does it benefit them? What is the actual true situation underneath of it? House would love to meet these people. Yep. He would be about it. And But the, by the time we get to this book, we always stop and say, the prose always has to stop and say, I could tell they were telling the truth. And that's not supposed to be something to throw us off. It's just supposed to be what we're, what we're taking emotionally from that scene. And it's so bad because these scenes are always so poorly written that there's a better horror scene underneath. We haven't even touched upon the fact what this is doing as a sequel that is specifically bad. Because there are so many characters in this novel that as a consequence of Anne introducing too many damn characters, every new novel and then getting bored of them, the ones that you actually came to care about over the first couple of books that had arcs and relationships and were significant and shit, yeah, there's no time for them. A whole conflicts, a whole relationship arcs are just mentioned in one or two sentences because everything significant happens in the last 80 pages of the book but things like Marius and Armand who have a you know a legendarily fraught relationship because you know Marius groomed and turned him and trapped him in the body of a teenager they have an argument that we don't get to hear about except off stage Daniel Malloy who had Even a break random reporter yeah who has been unpersoned. But there's an entire relationship thing where he left Armand ages ago and had been living with Marius and then in one sentence we are told, oh, by the way, uh, he and Armand got back together and they definitely want to go back and live together. They're just waiting for all this court stuff to blow over. That shit is of significant interest to the people who are still hanging around way more, way more than the court fucking who's sitting where. So you need to talk about the who's sitting where while I mix myself another drink. But to be clear, the only reason Armand and Daniel are back together is to make them both bastards who hurt Marius's feelings. Oh yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Because this is framed as Marius is sad and alone while he's trying to run the court. Because Anne has fixed it so that this guy is supposed to be the source of reliable wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge throughout the ages. The Roman guy who, you know you know, was responsible for ruining Lestat's marriage and keeping most of the hierarchical secrets and fucking teenagers and... But, you know, he's a great guy and should be in charge of the court forever unto eternity. But beyond all that, the prose. The prose in this book is so bad. I don't want to get into it too much. Uh, I'll link the thread I did where I that includes a lot of screenshots because it's easier when you look at it. But from an editing perspective, there is a shit ton wrong with this book. There are continuity errors, like a pretty significant cult called the Children of Darkness being renamed the Children of Satan, which is not what it was called. Uh, There are sentences that will reuse the same word four or five times, which is a thing that any halfway decent editor would catch. There is a lot of passive sentence construction. There's the exposition and the aforementioned telling the audience what their emotions they're supposed to draw from the scene. It is a Plain out-and-out poorly written book. Also, just over the course of the book, it feels like she's working from character sheets a lot because she'll settle on a descriptor for a character and then everyone who meets them will use that same descriptor. Not just, like, noticing this person's blonde, but noticing a specific, very distinctive phraseology. Every single person, no matter when and where they're from in the entire history of the planet will use the same phraseology because it feels like she's not bothering to organically integrate characters' perceptions into their own point of view. She's working from a set descriptor that's easy to to splice in. Yeah, again, a super scientist talks the same way as Lestat who was never at, who never learned to read while he was alive. But, but he did become a lead in the early nineties before, um, iPhones were too hard to use. Yeah, he uh, he used to be like a super great techno wizard until he forgot it. Was that a Mel also? Sure. Why not? Nothing fucking else makes. Nothing any sense. matters. There's a lot of a lot less Apple product placement in this one. Yeah, Prancelstad, you couldn't go five pages without mentioning that they weren't just using their phones; they were specifically using iPhones. Let's face it, they were rose gold. Absolutely, they were. That is the trashiest color, and therefore the most listodish. Whereas in this one, that she shies away from naming the brand of that, but she is full on thob product placement still. I don't know when she discovered the word thob or who introduced it to her, but I want to shake them until they stop. So all of the old fucks wear thobs. It's not. A, a, f- she doesn't even just say that they're wearing robes. Every fucking time she has, they are wearing a thob, italicized, a men's garment, which is. <laughs> She genders clothing a lot in this book. People, women aren't just wearing suits. They're wearing men's suits. Which, like, no, they're not. No, they're wearing suits. They're wearing their suits Uh that are theirs. Uh Like, if you stole it off the back of a dead man, that might be one thing. That might be a man's suit. But why would you do that when all vampires are millionaires? Right, because wealth-born. And, you know, speaking of Gabrielle... (sighs) One time, back Gabrielle th- can't wear men's or women's clothing. Yeah, one time in the eighties, Anne Rice lucked into writing a coded gender queer character, and she's been fucking it up ever since. Gabrielle is her best character, by the way. Thank God she's almost never in these books. Oh yeah, because Anne hates her because she's blunt and doesn't put up with Lestat's bullshit. Which, even as someone who used to like Lestat or likes Lestat in the early books, he full of bullshit. But but you know she's definitely not autistic oh god um you know somebody asked Anne once whether she, she meant to code gabrielle autistic and she literally laughed in their face that was a thing that was the thing and it was because bad, she's an asshole as it turns out yeah so it's not shitty enough that in some subsequent novels she goes from writing gabrielle as this person who is really disconfident who's like Main point of becoming a vampire is that she's super happy that she no longer has to wear dresses and she cuts off her hair and she really enjoys masculine presentation. And then she's really upset when her hair reverts to the length it was at her death because this is an aspect of her body and presentation that she can't control. Like, ever, forever. It's a very effective scene. You remember the scene in uh, an interview with the vampire, the movie, that didn't really go anywhere or do anything but was a very good effect shot with Claudia? It was an intensely serious scene with with Gabrielle. Yep, kind of sad. But so in subsequent novels and backpedals, write the fuck on that and talks about how wow, what a woman she is, what a small petite, definitely a woman. And then by this novel, she goes back and forth in. Um, with, also, Gabrielle is a lesbian, but we don't use that word because we don't. We don't. She has a. I mean, I just I'm, like vampire. God, they they've gone. They've gotten rid of the word vampire. I think it's mentioned once in the book, but mostly blood drinker. Because Anne doesn't actually want to be writing vampires anymore. She wants to keep writing the same OCs, just they're not vampires no more. Mm-hmm. But specifically with Gabrielle, she starts out the book with her her new lover, Sovereign, the one fat vampire. The Full w- figured. I think that just means titties and ass. Let me dream. Let me dream. Sovereign probably is as fat as me. Which is to say not really. But- I'm, like, not thin, but yeah. Yeah. Poorly phrased. No, no, I mean, like, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. She is in that nebulous space of body typage where I'm fairly sure Mm -hmm. that she's not more than 200 pounds. And so they roll up and allegedly Gabrielle is now wearing shiftless gray gowns with pearls. No, no. First she's wearing the shiftless gray gowns that the, the Yannick, uh... Um, gold vampire caves of lesbians who hate men wear. That place sounds fucking awesome. It does. It sounds amazing. But then she's wearing her usual safari outfit. The, the word usual is used, where, where she's wearing dusty khakis because Anne likes to describe anyone she hates as being dusty. I, I feel like somebody used the word musty around her and she misunderstood it. <laughs> and then later on, Gabrielle. Is at a ball and has her hair down and... You know, the is, thing she hates. And is wearing strings of pearls, you know, like a real mom. Uh It's bad. It's bad in the And head. is wearing a quote-unquote woman's gown. Which, like, yeah, that's pretty relevant. You need to describe the gown that Gabrielle's wearing as a woman's gown because it sure ain't hers. It's so Bad. (sighs) And literally on the next page, somebody, um, Bianca is wearing a men's suit. Well, yeah, because she wants, she wants the dick, so it's okay for her to wear masculine clothes. Or something. I don't know. It's bad. That's, that whole subplot is bad because it's introduced and solved in two pages. Yeah. There's shit in this that should have been introduced at the beginning of the book and resolved at the end with the interfit. Fearance of the Clones being a turning point, but it's not. Nope. Like, there's shit where Bianca wants Marius's dick. But he's too busy being sad because Daniel left him for three, reasons. Three pages later, Bianca and Marius are dancing together at a ball. Thrilling! I don't give a shit, because this is all happening at the end of the book and interfering with my wrap-up. That I've been waiting for for 450 pages, because I want this done. It is the weirdest thing. But, like, at least you could have mentioned at the beginning of the book, starting in in a somewhat negative neutral place, that Marius and Bianca ain't fucking, but she wants them to be. Then have the clones show up, and then after the clones show up and things start to normalize into the new normal, then Marius and Bianca fucking. Yes, that's called basic narrative construction. Because we wouldn't need a direct discussion of how the clones' interference in the world made Marius decide to fuck Bianca. But it would be an indication that, that the world is resolving towards a better... But no, no, this all happens within four pages. Well, if it hadn't happened in four pages, we might have had to have more than one sentence about Daniel. We didn't have any sentences about Daniel. We had sentences about Marius's lover who dumped him and sentences about that person who did an interview back in the seventies. It's not even named. I love Daniel. I know, sweetie. I know. But we can talk about your other good boy, he solves the plot in the last eighty pages where all of the plot happens. Four hundred and fifty pages all so poorly plotted. There is brain eating and there is nothing happening. Mm-hmm. Like, like the, these clone dudes are, at various points, captured by the vampires. Nobody cares. But uh, one of them decides to start eating vampire brains because reasons. It was in self-defense. Don't worry about it. Whatever. And that is not exciting. It's really boring. Yeah, the only actual conflict is... You ate somebody's brain. Rude. You're vampires. And it's fine, though, because he swears it was an accident in self-defense and he'll never do it again. He only ate that one vampire brain. Well, those two vampire brains. Well, don't worry though, he won't do it again. But the only actual, like, conflict conflict of the book is oh no, we need to move Amel out of Lestat's body. How can we do that without killing everybody? Good thing we've got anime haired scientists. The-, the clones all have anime hair, by the way. hmm. We haven't even discussed the, cl- the clones of clones. Because it doesn't matter. It's gross and weird, though. It is gross, and I mean, I think the only notable thing about the clones, besides the fact that it's more fucking characters who never even get lines—they're just there filling up meat space—is the fact that they get blonder the more clones there are. You know the exact same problem with the whole getting whiter. Um, the the clones can cut off a limb and it makes another one. Yep. So they can these immortal beings can theoretically just repopulate endlessly. This will have no negative consequences and draw no negative attention. Hand cutting should be a big motif in these books, but it's really not. I mean, it it is for a minute, just not in the later shitty books. No, but I mean, it serves no coherent, consistent narrative function. It's not a thematic thing. Mm -hmm. It's just a thing that keeps happening. Like, she likes the image of a hand separated from a body, but there's no... Consistent meaning to it. Mm-hmm. it. It's it is not a symbol. Most of the things in these in these books are. Whoops, you did it by accident. I guess you can trace a meaning to this. But but it, it's an oddly recurrent image without a meaning. There's no significance. Mm-hmm. Um, Derek gets his hand cut off, and apparently over the course of ten thousand years, these fuckers never lost a limb and never discovered that, in total defiance of the laws of con- conservation of mass. It would grow another one of them. Like starfish. So they all start growing other ones and just numbering them. Derek's clone is named Dare 2. This is treated as a very clever way to name them. This is a reasonable name that does not sound ridiculous at all. And they just keep doing this and it's not like triggering Derek's, you know, fear and misery or anything. His PTSD is fine with just getting subsequent limbs chopped off. It's briefly mentioned that it was... You know, horrifying, when, but but totally also okay when Lestat went around chopping people's arms off. He had to do it. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, because last book, Lestat chopped somebody's arm off and then put it back on. It does keep happening. Yeah. All the way back to the first Lestat book, where, you know, that was the most ultimate form of objection somebody could visit on Nikki. Who is not here? No, no, no. There are ghosts of fucking everybody, but not Nicholas, though. Or Claudia. Nope. Those characters are interesting. Fuck them. Again, this is the most page time Louis has had in ages, though. And he it, is tired. He is so fucking tired. It, we, we saved out a passage, even, to show how fu- like. So after all this bullshit has gone down, after all of this has been discussed, and the stupid clones have had their monologues and come and went away because they're secretive or something. Something. Because they want to have clone orgies. Um, Because the clone population is distributed identically to all Anne Rice books. 50% of the clone population is a gay couple that fucks around. 25% of the clone population is a bisexual man in a serious relationship with a woman who fucks around. 25% is a woman who likes all the dick. Again, it is amazing that Gabrielle has a girlfriend. I mean, do they really do anything, though? Yes, they do, and can't take this away from me. So the solution ends to this whole, oh no, what will happen if we take a Amel out of Lestat's body is... Well, you know, if we take a Amel out of Lestat's body, as we previously mentioned, fucking with the host of all vampires hurts the other vampires, and the weaker vampires suffer first. So Lestat has been, like, sleeping extra late, and and waking extra late every day and apparently w- during those times when he's not awake shit just keeps happening but it's fine it's fine it's fine it's fine like like sure there are phone calls being made that that he didn't make but it's fine mm-hmm. it's fine but then but then after this conversation has been going on for like weeks and everybody's dying inside and outside Louis comes to him and is like babe i know i'm just your kept boy It is astonishingly how Anne took the relationship that fucking everybody was about and made it as completely unpleasant as possible. Louis has no goals, no interests, no life, no... His entire philosophical conflict is completely brushed aside. Because now he just kills people that Lassat would approve of, whether or not he has any connection aesthetically or philosophically to that and like the first whole book was a negotiation between aesthetics and philosophy but not nah, fuck that he is no, he is no longer louis he is lestat's boyfriend with the green eyes that lestat doesn't like to look at they're, they're too luminous and green it, it's another weird thing that should be horror but is just weirdly dropped in there and forgotten but because like i mean green eyes are kind of a thing in this series mm-hmm. green eyes getting torn out of a face are a thing. Except that they're not. They're not. Louis' green eyeballs are fine. They're fine. It never comes up again after Amel mentions that, gosh, he really likes Louis' eyes and looking at them. And then Lestat suddenly mentions that he um, tries to, to get Louis to wear sunglasses as often as possible. But Louis is tired. And I'm going to read this as, um, as authentically as possible. Mm-hmm. Lestat, he said, I want you to please bear with me. Look at me. Pay attention. Listen to me for a change. He smiled to soften this and laid his hand on mine. Come on, Lestat, we'll listen. I growled deep in my throat. All right, I'm listening, I said. I read all that foolishness when it was published. Just like, that is the longest, like, verbal interaction between them. Louis does not get to talk much lestat doesn't get to talk much it's very yeah no he exposits sometimes at people and mentions that he just loves love loves Amel and just says dumb shit yeah this book is weirdly open with admitting that he's dumb but doesn't do anything with that it's just lestat is stupid as fuck in this book Uh uh-huh but anyway uh louis solved the plot but lestat's afraid that it's so dumb that people would pick on his boyfriend for being dumb it is very, oh, sweetie, you thought you had an idea. Don't worry, your pretty little head. But it's not head. very science. And the the next conversation managed to be it- because insulting. Because we figured out that if you dead, you stop being connected by the tentacles. Right. If you die again after you've been vampired. Wait. If you die down here. Don't know, if you come down this far, then you're already dead. Whoa. They actually bothered to bring in continuity from one of the shitty books. Where, where Louis was bewitched into trying to toss himself out into the sun, but got And also back. fucking a woman, which is so out of character. I mean, he is gay. He is super gay. Like, I'm sorry. Louis is one of those characters that I'll come down as a bisexual and be like, this boy's not bi. No, all of his reactions. Like, he's horny because all vampires are horny, but he gay. But yeah, he tossed himself in the sun because um, something, something Claudia's ghost, something. Something. The uh, Merrick. Something a witch told him to. She, she's dead. She's dead. Don't worry about it. She, she killed herself off screen. But like, yeah, he set himself on fire one time about 15 years ago. And that disconnected him from the great central consciousness. And it's- nobody noticed but him. And he only noticed when something bad happened to Lestat recently, which is very funny because that that's what he's citing because like, he should have noticed about two years earlier <laughs> But when Lestat ate Mikari's brain and everybody else was having a seizure but Louis was fine I just imagine him like eating a sandwich I know he can't eat sandwiches but I kind of like to to imagine him just standing there what's everybody doing <laughs> suck <laughs> maybe I better lie down you know it seems to be the dumb thing <laughs> yeah and then everybody's getting up and so is he Who, oh boy that sure was unfortunate what happened there Gosh, what did it feel like to you? And like On the one hand, I am very glad that <laughs> Louis got to do a smart thing for the first time in forever, because Anne resents him so much. For holding a lot of feelings that, understandably, she doesn't want to revisit. But also because readers didn't like David, who she wrote to replace him, and she had to bring him back. So I'm very glad he got to be central to this. But also... Armand also almost died by throwing himself into the sun, and there is no discussion of whether he is also disconnected from all of this. But the last book did mention that Amel never visits the New York Coven. So, I kind of like to imagine. Also, they never do any experiments on whether a vampire who has been severed from the central coil... Siring people subsequent to that severing, whether those spawn are connected. no that's and now we can never do that because like problem solved right. Um also there's a mad scientist vampire who yep. gets exactly one mad science point. he does because they have this conversation that is there there, sh- there should only be one mad science vampire. there are two one of them is a womb. Yeah, it's just she should be another female character who should be interesting but never gets to do anything. She should just be combined with Farid. I have this problem with a lot of vampire novels where authors will introduce a female character to have vagina feelings and then introduce another character to solve that character's vagina feelings. But this character has a penis where it would make more sense if you just combined the penis and vagina characters and had the person with the vagina who has a problem solve it themselves. But like... Let I mean, if we were to but go, the Chinese can't think, as we all know. Yes, well, if you go down the list of female characters in this, in this book, there's a, a lady who uh, is drawn in by Derek and gets her face smashed in. There, but is, doesn't have her brain eaten. I'm so mad. I was so glad to see Elaney and then nothing came of it. Uh, there, there is there is the lady scientist who gets two lines. There is Gabrielle. There is Capetria, who gets the entire monologue, but isn't a real woman. Yep. And then there's there's uh, Bianca, who gets no lines. We're just mentioned, it, we're just told she wants to fuck Marius. Rose gets no lines. She has one or two, but they're not important. I, no, she doesn't have lines. She's it's just, mentioned that she has a distress. Right. It's mentioned that she strongly has opinions, but we don't hear what those opinions and are. And everybody overrules them anyway. Mm-hmm. And so- fuck Rose. I don't care about her anyway. I mean, she is boring, but just, it, it adds up. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it counts to the stats. I just don't care about her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I believe that's it. Sabraine doesn't get any lines either. Bianca really wants that Marius dick. For God knows what reason. Ugh. Yeah, so it's not good. And the whole con- the whole mad scientist and Louie conversation wounds up being insulting both to literate, to fine arts, and to science. Because first they treat Louis like he's stupid because he has gotten this idea as an applied theory from literature. But then at the end, Farid has this Except woman, that it's not an applied theory from literature. It's an applied theory from spiritualism, which was considered to be a legitimate a spiritual scientific movement in the late 19th and early 20th century. Like, at the time it was happening, it was believed to be... But then at the end of the chapter, they go all the way to the other end, where, like, Fareed isn't like, wow, he could do more of this. He's, like, specifically like, I will throw out all of my science and become a monk if this works. And I'm like, all right, fuck. So just fuck both of these groups, I guess. What is balance? But, yeah, basically, if your heart stops enough times, Herbert West is, like, leaning over, (laughs) like, like, peering over the top of the page, for a sufficient quantity of time, Herbert West. Leads in harder. Well, as we know, the six minute limit. No, 12 minute. (laughs) The six to 12 minute limit. Then it's fine and we can restart your heart and you are no longer part of the mass. And I think if you squint, there's this theme about how they're losing this biological connectivity, but they're building a societal connectivity with Lestat starting this court. But that's stupid. The court is shitty and stupid. Yeah. Why do vampires need a government? No, I've been harping on this for like a year and a half on Tumblr, that it's stupid for the vampires to have a court because they have no collective interests other than being assholes to one another. I mean, the vampires who are doing business are doing business. In the human world, so what? You want us to have a court so you can collude? Yes. Yes. Yes, actually. Um, Vampires who don't have lots of money are rubes and uh, deserve shame. And also we should probably kill them off because they're putting a lot of strain on that collective thing that we're just now severing with no problems. But, you know. You have no territories in common. You have no interests in common. Your hierarchies are bullshit. You, you don't deserve a court. You don't deserve... You're not a nation. You aren't a nation. You don't need a government. The only reason that anybody even put up with this government bullshit is literally the centralized power source for all of our bodies could kill us if somebody fucked it up. No, but it's, they just, they all love Lestat so much and they couldn't go on without him. Yeah, literally. <laughs> what point in going on without him? An actual line Somebody actually says that is what point is there in being immortal if Lestat weren't there to sparkle at you. This is not somebody Lestat has fucked, by the way. It's just another person. No, that that's just a reasonable response to the concept of Lestat. He has a certain je ne sais quoi Uh Dickery. <laughs> yeah. no, but, so, but but yeah, Louis's like, if the heart stop long enough, you ain't connected. And that is his job done. Good boy, now you go and sit and hold Lestat's hand. And so everybody freaks out and is like, oh, how do we test this? <laughs> and since apparently injection needles work on vampires now, they didn't before. They, they do now. That's how Lestat got a boner. hmm. While everybody is arguing over how we should do this, he just goes and grabs kills needle. himself, and it's great. It's, it's amazing. Just And then revives himself. I don't understand why his vampire healing didn't revive him. Because of the science goo. But but apparently we have science goo that can just turn your heart off and then turn it back on. Yep. No need to explain it. Which is totally a thing. And from this we extrapolate with many reassurances. No explanations, just reassurances. That if everybody had just left Akash's heart out for a little bit before eating it... This wouldn't have been a problem ever. If you just let it spoil a bit, like hang it up in the window and get gamey. Problem solved. Everybody would have recovered. And the actual surgery is astonishingly anticlimactic. He goes down, he's, he wakes up within the page unconscious and everything is fine. And then everybody's not connected to, to vampirism before. Benji's state radio told everybody to take a nap during this half hour. She kind of remembered that time zones are a thing, but not really. Um They schedule it specifically so that it happens when the majority of European vampires the ones that are already napping, because European vampires are the ones that matter. Uh-huh. Those are the ones where it's the saddest when they died. And then the end of the book is just, Lestat is sad uh, that Amel is gone. No, no, Amel's not gone yet. Remember, he had beef with Capetria, because after that happened, Amel is still there in his head. and And Lestat likes that. But Capetra is, quote, like an unhinged mother determined to rescue a child. is older than her mm-hmm. and was her teacher, whether the child wills it or not, because Child Protective Services is bullshit. I don't care anymore. I just and, and want it to be over. Capetria is not a maternal character, we're told repeatedly, except for all the times where her only function is to be maternal. She spends most of her time not monologuing, comforting Derek. With her boobs. Yep. Clutching to her breast. But it all turns out fine, because she's been building a mellow body, and that happens, and then he is sad, but don't worry. And, and then there's brain surgery, and that's like, I'm not ready for this brain surgery. There's no reason for him to not be, it's other than that he really likes having a literal demon in his head doing shit to his body. But no, we said that was fine, so it's fine. And then Emil's not in his body anymore and everything's chill. And Apparently there are seams on his skull, which, which makes no sense because he's a vampire. Right, so it should. there is no permanent damage as right. long as your blood is sufficiently strong right and then he and louis go to a cafe and louis notices his ex-boy toy and louis just stands there while lestat bones a mel in, in public his new body in total public meanwhile like they actually get down in public yep vampire style <laughs> meanwhile in order to be with lestat uh, louis had to leave behind his happy marriage of 10 years with with armand in new york but you know whatever so that's that book it's bad it's really fucking bad. Like, we, have, uh, we often it's say- It's trash in every possible dimension. Yeah, because these books have, for a long time, had narrative choices that are either abhorrent or just poorly considered, and there have been continuity errors stacking up, but this is poorly written and planned on every level. Like, the prose level, the plotting level, the characterization level, the organizational level, everything about this book is bad. It's not even fun to read, particularly. No, it took me like three and a half months to read this. I read like 50,000 words a day when I can. Yes. It's like a slog. at minimum if I can, if I can be lazy and just read. This book was so painful that both of us had to just constantly prod one another hey, we need to record. Did you finish this book yet? No, let's wait another month. But we got through it. We survived. And and next time we're going to do something that's at least more readable. Ugh. Well, debatably. But way more 60s. Yay! So that about wraps us up. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can find other episodes of this, as well as our other podcast, Trash and Treasures, on SoundCloud. Uh, if you liked us, you could leave us a review or a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, helps people to find us, and we really appreciate it. You can email us uh, at treasures underscore pod at outlook.com, or you can get a hold of us on social media on Tumblr at trashandtreasurespod.tumblr.com or on Twitter at TrashPod, where if you set, come over and uh, say hi, we might give you a shout-out on the show. We always appreciate you. And with that, uh, what are we doing next time? Next time, we are looking at Chrome by George Nader, which, um, Most of y'all probably only know as the Robot with Dildo Arms book. You probably thought it was a photo manip. No, no. It's a real novel and we own it. I was so happy to get a copy a few years back. I have a weird book collection and um, this is part of it. So we're going to take a look at this very gay sci-fi book from the late 60s. All right. So look forward to that, listeners. And until next time, take care of yourselves out there. See